by grace and by choice is learning from Jesus how to live. Someone who by grace and by choice is learning from Jesus how to live. And so let's keep reading verse 17. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. So he's got these 11 disciples, they're in Galilee, they're on this mountain that Jesus had sent them to, and it says they saw him and they worshipped him, but then some doubted. And I, I want to uh, look at this because there's 11 of them, there's 11 of them, and all 11 worship and some of the 11 doubt. Uh, and so I want to take them one at a time and look at worship, then look at doubt and put them together. All right. And so let's talk worship because Matthew, uh, Matthew in this little passage right here goes out of his way. He goes out of his way to highlight when they worshiped. And they worshiped, it says, when they saw him. When they saw when they came into the presence of Jesus is when worship exploded in them. That worship takes place in the presence of Christ. And so I want to ask the question this. Uh, how as a church do we in a unique way um, come into the presence of Christ? And I want to talk about three things. First, what we're doing right now, our um, our Sunday gatherings and how it is that we come into the presence of Christ here um, in our Sunday gathering. And I want to I want to plead with you. There is there is something that I think all of our pastors, we feel an anxious burden for you that you would see and that you would understand when we come together on Sundays that Sunday is more than a sermon. That Sunday is much, much more than this. And certainly, certainly right now as we open up the Scriptures week in and week out and we hold up Christ out of the Scriptures, we, we see Him and in this unique and beautiful way, Christ becomes present among us. But there is more to Sundays than a sermon. There's also our liturgy and then there's our sacraments. And if liturgy is a, uh, a new word, if that's kind of a foreign word to you, don't, uh, don't really let it be. Right? Every church has a liturgy. It just means the order of your public worship. Right, so some liturgies have a lot, some have a little, some are high, some are low, but every church has a liturgy. Every church has an order to their gatherings on, um, on Sunday. And our liturgy has four parts to it. In the beginning, we had what we called a call to worship, and then we had a confession of sin, and then we had an assurance of pardon. At the end, we're going to have a benediction. And that's meant to mirror these four pieces, that God is holy, we are sinners, Christ saves us, Christ sends us. In other words... Our liturgy every week is meant to walk us through the narrative or the story of the Gospel. And in doing so, we get to see Christ held up in front of us week in and week out in this beautiful way. And then, um, and then we have our sacraments, these signs of God's grace. And so every week, um, we finish the sermon and then someone prays and we say amen. Uh, and then people are standing up here next to the bread in the cup and you come down and you, you take this piece of bread and you dip it in the cup and then you... Uh, you, you eat it, and then you go back, and these are, these are physical representations of Christ to us. And then we leave Sundays, and we go and we gather with a neighborhood parish, and in our neighborhood parishes, Christ is present in a unique way there as well, that, uh, that in community, in this pursuing church is family. And if I could just pause, everyone in here knows this. If you have any church background at all, you, you know uh, that that community inside of a church, church as family, is difficult to live out. It's messy, you're broken, I'm broken, we're all broken. Broken people come together and create broken little communities. All right? It is a challenge to live out, but we fight to do so because in our struggling marriages, in our loneliness, when we come together and in our community, striving to be church as family, Christ meets us there. Christ is tangibly present to us in one another. 
is uniquely there among our parishes and inside of our parish gatherings. And then, um, let, me, let me say something else. Let me say this. We, we talk and I talk often about the importance of vulnerability in, inside of our neighborhood parishes, inside of community. And we have to get beyond that. that that's, that's stage one, certainly. But we've got to get beyond transparency to vulnerability. We have to get beyond just, hey, this is who I am, look at me, to this is who I am and I need you to speak into it. I need your voice into my life. I need you to speak into this. We have to get beyond transparency to vulnerability with one another for Christ to actually meet us where we are. Right? Because if we're not, if we're not vulnerable with one another, like if we don't get there with one another, we're, we're asking Christ to meet us somewhere that we're not. Right? We're holding up an illusion to the people around us saying, hey, Christ, through them, come and change me. But it's not the real me. We have to get beyond transparency to vulnerability, allowing people to speak into our lives. And then we, we leave there, and on our own, we, we go to the Scriptures and we go before the Lord in prayer. And I think one of the big challenges to uh, us personally engaging the Lord in the Scriptures is that we don't know how. Um, that we think the, the Bible is confusing. And by the way, did you know the Bible says the Bible's confusing? So you're not alone, all right? But just, just do it. You don't have to understand everything you're reading. Just open up the Scriptures and start reading and watch Christ come alive in you. And so there's, uh, if I could give two reasons why Sunday gathering, parish gatherings, the Scriptures, prayer are important. Reason one. Reason one is that you're going to become what you behold. You will become what you behold. Whatever it is that you consistently put out in front of you, that you gaze your attention and your affection on, you will become what you behold. And then second, second reason, it's the only way to deal with doubt. It's the only way to deal with doubt. And some doubt is more intellectual, right? Um, and some doubt is more emotional. Some is more, uh, how can there be a, good God and cancer exist, right? How could there be a good God and there still be hurricanes and tornadoes and death? And, and in some is, hey, I'm, I'm trying to trust you. I'm trying to believe, but my marriage is crumbling. I mean, all around me, I see fire in my life and I'm trying to believe. I'm trying to trust you. Right, some more emotional, some more intellectual. And it can be easy to believe uh, especially if you have a church background. If, if you grew up in the church, I didn't grow up in the church, but if you grew up in the church, uh, it, it can be really easy to believe uh, that worship and doubt are incompatible. And that's simply not true. That's simply not true. What, what Matthew knows is that Jesus is a, is a safe place to bring your doubts regardless of the kind of doubt. And the thing about doubt is that if you're honest about it, if you can be honest about your doubts, if you... If you can take your wrestles and your struggles and lay them bare before the Lord and before the people around you, it can actually be fuel for your worship. But if you're silent, if you're silent about your doubt, it, it will actually suffocate your worship. Like, like Matthew knows that Jesus is a safe place to bring your doubts and that worship and doubt are not incompatible. Matthew knows this because the word that he used for doubt is used one other time in the Bible and it's in connection with worship also. That worship and doubt are not incompatible. And the real question is not, are they? The real question is, how, how does Jesus respond to our doubt? 
because how he does is going to reveal the undercurrent of doubt. Let's keep reading. So back in 17, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. And listen to these next six words. But some doubted, and Jesus came. But some doubted, and Jesus came. And in their doubt, Jesus approached them. If you're in this room right now, if you're in this room right now, and you're struggling with doubt on any level, on any front, that does not mean that Christ is distant from you. If you are in this room and you are struggling with doubt, that does not mean Christ is distant from you. Some doubted, and he came. And he came. This is what he said. And he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So it's Jesus' response to their doubt. His response is, All authority is given to me. This reveals the undercurrent of doubt. And the undercurrent of doubt is a lack of trust in the good and gracious authority of Christ. The root. I mean, if we get underneath what's underneath, what's underneath, what's underneath our doubt, it's a lack of trust in a good and gracious authority of Christ. And this has been the undercurrent from the beginning. This was, uh, this was Satan's trick in uh, Genesis 3 when sin entered the world. Uh, his trick was get you to doubt the goodness of God's authority to get you to lack trust in God, to create doubt in you through a lack of trust in God. Jesus, knowing this, engages the undercurrent, and he says, all authority has been given to me. And I think a, a fair question, when I, when I read this, one of the questions that just leapt off the page at me uh, was, all authority has been given to me when? When? So it, it's, it's pretty clear from the Scriptures that authority was given from the Father to the Son, but when did the Father give this authority to the Son? And there are two real options that get debated. One option is eternally. Now, this was an eternal authority from the Father to the Son. Uh, and the second option is that it was given to Him in the resurrection. And as we piece the Scriptures together, I think this is the answer. I think the answer is yes. I think yes, it's this eternal authority given from the Father to the Son. And then yes, it was given back in the resurrection. And this is what makes the Gospel so beautiful. In Philippians 2, the words will be on the screen, paints this picture. It says, Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And he's eternal deity, eternal authority of God. Didn't, didn't count this equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But in the incarnation and in the cross, this is what happened. There was a letting go of eternal authority. That Christ became submissive to divine authority and he allowed himself to take on the abuse of an earthly authority. And in the incarnation and in the cross, Christ let go of eternal authority, submitted to divine authority, and was subjected to abuse of earthly authority. That Christ exercised His authority by laying down authority. That it would be taken back up in the resurrection. And so it, if you have this religious background where you, you, you think authority, religion, never should be commingled. Don't you see how different Jesus is? That 
that where religion would look at authority and say that it's supreme and my objective is to gain authority over a group of people to then exercise that authority, don't you see how different Jesus is? That He, the One who eternally shared the authority of God, would lay that down for your redemption and for mine. Do you see how different Jesus is? And Christ exercised authority by laying it down and then having it given back in the resurrection. And so what does this mean for sojourn? Here's what this means for sojourn. It means that the central rallying cry of sojourn is a man of divine authority who laid it down for our redemption. Which means the story of sojourn is not the story of sojourn is not a neighborhood, it's not a city, and it's not a model of ministry. The story of sojourn is a man of divine authority who laid that authority down for our redemption and is calling us to lay our lives down for the redemption of others. That is the story of sojourn. And by the grace of God, that will always be the story of sojourn. It's why we changed our mission statement this year to, to say, joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. That's our mission statement. So you want to know anything about sojourn, you want to know who we are, what we're about, why we're here, why do we exist, this is why we exist. We exist to join Father, Son, Spirit in the historic work of redemption. You know what the church in India is doing? Joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. You know what the church in Dubai is doing? The church in Dallas, the church in Canada, the church in Mexico. You know what they're doing? They're joining the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption. It's why we want to lead out with what makes us like every other church, not what makes us unlike every other church. Because for 2,000 years, the why has never changed. The why we exist has never changed. And it will never change until Christ returns. And so we lead out with our why, not our what. We lead out with why we're here, not what we're doing. But every church has a what. And God wired it this way and God designed it this way. It's, I think one of the great apologetics for Christianity is that the why can remain the same and then it can, it can shape and influence any and every culture under the sun. It's not culturally restricted. The what changes everywhere. And our what is this. Make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, and repeat. Make disciples, multiply parishes, plant churches, and repeat. So in light of, in light of Matthew 28, Philippians 2, what does it look like to be a disciple? What is it that we want to see in us, in our people, as we make disciples of one another? It means that we're a group of men and women who are willing to lay the authority over our life down and say, Christ, take control of my life. You be the supreme authority of my life, over my life, in my life. That even in my hurts, even in my fear, even in my struggles, that I would fight to say, Christ, I trust you. And, and a fair question for us is this. Do you? Do you? Do, do you trust him? In the middle of whatever it is you're struggling with, do you trust him? Right? Are, are you a serial dater? Because you don't trust that God has your present and your future. Are you a serial dater because you're deathly afraid of never getting married? Do you trust Him? Are you trying to fix your marriage on your own 
and unwilling to, to let people speak in and get help. Did that just come on right there? Do you have a porn addiction and you're unwilling to scream, I'm on fire? Because you don't trust the good, gracious, sovereign authority of God to extend grace to you through the people around you? Do you have an addiction of any form that you need to scream, I'm on fire and I need help. Help me. Christ, help me. Help me through the people that are around me. Help me. And then why do we multiply parishes? We multiply parishes because God has always intended His people to multiply. And that the, the goal is to see gospel multiplication. That every new parish, every new community of men and women is a chance for Acts 17 to be lived out where men and women would feel their way to God. That they'd be safe places for people to bring their doubts. And that we might saturate the greater heights in this part of the city God has called us to with neighborhood parishes. And that the Gospel would be made visible. And then why do we plant churches? We plant churches for the same reason that we multiply parishes. That God has always intended His people to multiply. And that the goal is a Gospel multiplication. That's the goal that we would see in every new church a chance for Acts 17 to be lived out. That people would feel their way to God. That there would be new churches around Houston where it's okay and safe to bring your doubts into this local community, this local church. And that we might saturate Houston with the presence of Christ and the Gospel would be made visible. And so over the last year, uh, you, you probably know over the last year, we've been in the process of planting Sojourn Galleria. That, that we've started this long process a year ago with Taylor Ince about to plant Sojourn Galleria. And last April, they, they, they started uh, their parish. And we've gone from uh, walking to jogging, and now it's time to start running. And so here's what we're going to do next week. Uh, next week, after the Sunday gathering, down, I assume, in the basement. I don't know that for sure, but we'll tell you more uh, next, next Sunday. There's going to be a, uh, a, a kind of Sojourn Galleria Vision Sunday. Uh, Taylor's going to lay out this is what we're doing this is how we're going to get there and then the week after we're going to give him 10 minutes in here and we're going to tag team something and he's just going to throw out this is why we're planting Sojourn Galleria and, uh, and then in October they're going to start a soft launch uh, where, uh, which means a few Sundays a month uh, they're going to start gathering over uh, in the elementary school where they're going to be holding Sunday gatherings they're going to continue moving forward with multiplying parishes and then January 10th, uh, they'll hard launch Sojourn Galleria uh, on and holding Sunday gatherings. Uh, and we, uh, we can't wait. But here's the thing. Some of you in this room, some of you in this room need to start praying. And you need to start praying uh, that, uh, that if you live between the tens and the tolls, as they say it, in that Galleria area, you need to start praying about going with Taylor and the crew over there uh, to be a part of Sojourn Galleria. And some of you, need to pray about relocating and being a part of what God is doing in that Galleria area through Sojourn Galleria as they go to uh, see the gospel made visible to form this new community. This new community, not where we go into the Galleria to colonize the Galleria and to take over the Galleria, but we would send a community of men and women into the Galleria area that they would model and reflect Christ to our city. Be this community of people where we lay our lives down or we would reflect the, the way that He laid His authority down to serve us, that we would lay our lives down to serve our city, to serve the
the Galleria area. That when we look at the Great Commission, when we look at this passage and we see the uh, authority of Christ set down, laid down, we see the Gospel reminding us of our why, why we're here, why we exist, that we're here to join the Father, Son, and Spirit in the historic work of redemption, the same work of redemption that's been happening for 2,000 years and will continue on long after we're gone. And then the Gospel compels us toward our what? Make disciples, multiply parishes, and plant churches until our neighborhood and our city are saturated with the presence of Christ and that Christ in the Gospel becomes visible until every man, woman, and child in our city have a neighbor who's there to be their neighbor so that they might come to know Christ as Savior. Let's pray.